welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So I mentioned um, the Sunday is Trinity Sunday, which usually means that the preacher will take this as an opportunity to try to explain the Trinity, um, often using different analogies like water and ice and steam or a clover or whatever the uh, whatever the analogy that they want to use, and um, and then they will try to work through and explain that reality. I'd say at least like ninety nine point five percent in doing so will end up historically at least a pseudo heretic. Um, here's the problem: uh, analogies only work when you're trying to say trying to describe something that has something that is analogous to it. Um, When you have a reality that is beyond our comprehension and our experience in our own reality, if you use anything within our reality or experience or comprehension, then you are going to actually pervert the very thing that you're trying to explain. I don't want to be a heretic. Um, As one of my big goals in life, um, I want to have a boat I want to have more land, and I don't want to be a heretic. Um, So I'm not going to do that. Uh, I will say, I I do like, though, I I put, it's an old um, depiction on the front of your bulletins uh, of the the triangle. And, and, And I think, you know, it doesn't explain much, but it is simple, and it is kind of what historically the church can say. It's in Latin, um, but that, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but then the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and I think it's good, good to leave it there. But instead, I'm going to use the lectionary readings and just kind of give a reflection on both of the passages today, but kind of focusing on the theme that was started in, in Pentecost last Sunday. And that we're going to continue into um, for most of common time, which is looking at Acts, the planting of the church, the establishment of the church. And so, as I said last Sunday from Pentecost, it don't look like it. It doesn't sound like it, but we're going to be looking at how how God first did it, and we're going to plant a Pentecostal church. Amen. <laughs> but so as Trinity Sunday falls into this, I do see some value and some, and, and some a unique connection within Genesis. And the amen was good because that's, that, that brings back my Baptist roots. But you, so y'all can do that, you know. Um, but some connection to this idea of what God is doing. And so I want to reflect primarily on these two passages, focusing on God, the triune, three in one, as creator, 
the one who creates and recreates. And then our mission as his created or redeemed. I'm going to start with the Genesis account. Um, And these are in here most likely not because Genesis is a deeply Trinitarian passage, but it does capture something quite interesting. You see hints towards the reality of the Trinity. Because in the beginning, you have the Father, or God speaking, but it's His Word that creates. And then you have the Spirit orchestrating and present in the midst of that creation. And we see within that, that depiction of, of God, all, all three active in the process of creation. We see a poetic depiction of this creation idea. Actually, there's two creation stories. One has this poetic rhythm, one has this kind of narratival flow. And I just want to say, as a side note, I, 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 I don't really care that much and don't want to argue. There's all these different views on, on, on the science of, of, of Genesis and trying to break it down. But my problem with that is not what your view is. I don't, I don't really care. My problem is, is that if you get so wrapped up in that view that you miss why this is in here in the first place. There's two different accounts because they're capturing two different realities. And what it is primarily doing is not giving scientific data to a newly liberated people from bondage in Egypt about 6,000 years ago in the context or formula that wouldn't come about for another 6,000 years. What it's doing is revealing the nature of the one who just saved them. Who they are. And their intended relation to him and the rest of creation. In many ways, it's a polemic against the creation myths that they would have grown up knowing in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Myths that had the gods of the sun and the gods of this and the god and localized gods and all these different things. And this says, no, in the beginning was God. And all these other things that you worship, actually, he created all of them. He's the God and the sovereign over all that exists. And as you go in, there's this beautiful kind of rhythm in the first creation count where it says that that God said, and then God said, and then God said, and then it depicts a certain aspect of creation, and then it says, and it was good. The Hebrew term for good is tov which is important to kind of note on that because in in the Hebrew term tov, it carries this idea of it is as it is intended, which is different than the Western mind's often concept of good as imperfect. Because see, in the Western mind, there's this idea that draws from Plato of of anything that that is perfect can't change. You have the perfect forms, and that is perfect. Anything that can change means that it's imperfect. It's not good. That comes from Greek thought, but within 
the Hebrew mind and the concept of tov is good is this is what it's supposed to be. And if it, what it's supposed to be is something that grows and changes, then that is good. And something that is to grow and change if it remains static is not good. It's not tov. And as you go through all these, I want to focus on, on day six. And it says that on the sixth day, God created man and woman. And they were very tov. They were tov tov. And I think that this depiction carries extremely valuable anthropological information, knowledge and understanding of our condition, our situation, both in this account and the second account. And I'm going to actually draw from both a little bit to draw out a few particular points that I think are important. It's not as as clear in the first creation account, but in the second creation account, we see something very profound about this creation account, very different than Mesopotamians and the Egyptians, is that Man and woman were created for communion with God, for relationship with God. In the second account, it says that God created them and then he dwelt with them. Walking in the midst of the garden almost as a friend. And in our reading, it says that man and woman were created in his image. two things I want to note on this really quick. Um, First is something that is quite radical, not in our age, but it's quite radical. Man and woman were created in the image of God. Both man and woman equally reflect and represent God and his majesty and his glory. In the second account, that idea is is heightened by the imagery of the woman being created out of Adam's rib. That would have had symbolic meaning within that context and time. Because she was not created out of his head as if she ruled over him and not under his foot as if he ruled over her. But he, he was created out of his side as if they were act completely equal. So that was just kind of an aside, but I think it's important for us to know. But it says that he was created in the image of God, and that's often, I think, misconstrued because of how we use the idea of image today. Um, First, image of God does not mean that they were created with the same physical attributes of God, how they look. Like, the triune God was not sitting there saying, like, all right, so we got... We got a nose and two eyes. And then, like, we got, we kind of got, like, monkey hair up here, but then nothing down here. So let's create man and woman like that, because so they look like, like, that's not what it's doing. It's not talking about what they look like. And it's also not the image of God as often is, is depicted. It has, it's not speaking about attributes. Certain special abilities of humanity. And definitely not that man is different because man has God-like attributes. 
one of the things that makes man different from the other creatures is that in the fall, we sought to be like God and have God-like attributes. But that's not what it's speaking about. And I think that that's important really quick as another aside for Christian ethics. The, attrib- the, the image of God, the significance of human life, is not tied to particular abilities or attributes. So if an individual does not have the cognitive ability that makes them what we think a person doesn't mean that they cease to be the image of God. Both a tiny baby or somebody with severe mental retardation, it doesn't matter. Because the image of God in the Near East is tied to the idea of how emperors and kings would have images set up. They would build actual uh, 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 statues in all of the lands that they had conquered. And what was spoken of as an image was a representation of their rule and authority in that particular land. And so God took Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, and gave them a special title a position that was bestowed upon them, something extrinsic from them and given to them, marking them to be God's representatives of his reign and rule and authority within his kingdom upon earth. Some scholars point out, and I think they are right, is if you look at this in the, in the Hebrew context, in the Hebrew language, the imagery of the depiction of the garden and this, this idea of, of, of the establishment and role of Adam and Eve is actually a depiction of God establishing a temple and setting up Adam and Eve as priests to be representatives of God throughout his creation. And it carries in a little bit of something. If you read in Peter, after the fall and our redemption, he speaks about the priesthood of all believers. It's just restoring all people back to their pre-fallen state. It's God's priests within creation. And we see, so we see that they are commissioned as priests, as image bearers, to, to then continue what God initiated with the garden but to expand it. And as they do so, they do so in communion with God. It says that they were given dominion to subdue and rule over the entire world, that they were to expand out into the entire world, entrusting them with what is ultimately the work of God throughout all creation. Which this has often been misused by humanity because we read dominion and subdue, which means that we can just rape and pillage it and use it for whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want, and destroy it. But we are to have dominion and rule as image bearers, as representatives of God, and I don't think that that's how God rules. We're supposed to reflect His dominion as caretakers. And in chapter 2 we see something a little bit different. It says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And then it goes on and describes the boundaries of this garden and the, and the rivers and where, you know, to have a sense of where it would have been located. And then the Lord, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to cultivate it. See, in, in chapter 2, we have God being the first gardener. And he cultivates a garden within creation that eventually man is to subdue and to fill. But the garden is a limited particular location within, which is not usually how we think of it. And God commissions Adam and Eve that in union with him, they were to continue the work he had begun and in a sense expand the garden. Where? Throughout the rest of the earth. So I said we often think of the garden as like, oh, that's how earth was. That's how creation was. Well, well, no, because it's very clear that he set it apart as a certain place, gave boundaries to it. And then if you do read the fall narrative, it says that they were cast out of the garden. If they were cast out of the garden, what were they cast into? The rest of the earth where the garden wasn't yet. But they were brought in to take what God initiated and to see that expanded throughout creation. So we see from our Genesis account that from the beginning, God created humanity for communion with him. And then he grants them a special extrinsic status, a role as representatives of him and participants with him in his creative work. And that they were given a special gift, a place to dwell in perfect security, peace, and union with him, and then with him expand it across the face of the earth as they increase and multiply, a.k.a. make babies. But then if you read further, which good thing we didn't, because Carrie already had to read enough, but if you do read further, you'll know how that all turned out. Man traded the image bestowed upon us for trying to be gods ourselves. Creative reflecting God's rule to pursuing our own rule. Doing with God's creation what we please. As we see in the garden, deciding we can eat whatever we want to eat. Expanding the garden and bringing God's loving order to all of creation to us expanding our empire. Bringing disorder and chaos wherever we go. But by God's grace, through his redemptive work, we get a little glimpse at the end of the story that God does fulfill what he originally set us out to do. Even though we jacked it up. If you read in Revelation, we have a depiction of a new garden. But the garden is now a city, and the garden now encompasses all of creation. That what God intended, even though we rebelled and, and went against, he, his purposes will always be fulfilled. So I love the Eastern Orthodox perspective, because they don't have this static idea of perfection. And so when they saw that it was good within the garden, 
The Eastern concept is that in the Eastern Orthodox Church is that what God intended in the garden was always what happens at the end of Revelation, even if we had not fallen. His purposes cannot be thwarted. But by grace, even though we rebelled, we are included. So we have this grand narrative arc. Which I hope helps. I find it intriguing, but also there is the question of like, so what? Like, where do we fit into this and what does this have to do with Matthew 28 that we just read? And I think in in many ways it's important to have this because in this we have, in essence, the beginning of of a play. Like a four-act play. And where we are now is that we already had the first three acts played out. And we also have in Revelation the end of the play. But right now we're living in the midst of the fourth act. The fourth act that was initiated with what we celebrated in Easter. And really set forth within Pentecost. The fourth act in which God is redeeming, but also preparing the way for new creation. It's not just happenstance that Jesus was raised on Sunday. When we read in Genesis, it said on the seventh day, which was Saturday, God rested from his creating. And then on that Easter Sunday, the first day of the new week, he started creating building new creation. Restoring new life. Not taking dirt and breathing into it to create life, but taking dry bones and breathing into it that there might be new life. So we have now in this fourth act, God creating a new people. The Father sending the Son to create a people that then, what? They're set apart. Given an extrinsic status. And as children of God. By redeeming them that then they might be able to walk in communion with Him through the Holy Spirit. Building and establishing the church, which was supposed to be in it, Sadly, throughout history, often is not, but it was supposed to be kind of like a representation of the new garden, a place of peace, security, and union with God. Because the church is the people, the community that is formed out of the gospel. And that's where we have our Matthew reading. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the beginning of of. of the new act, the fourth act. And we have, after Jesus raising on that first day, (laughs) gathering those whom he's redeemed and saying, designating and marking them, giving them new life and marking them as his redeemed people. Just like Adam and Eve standing in the garden, he gives them a commission 
that is actually not too different than the commission that was given to Adam and Eve. That they were to be representatives of him. Proclaiming his glory, his dominion, his grace. Teaching them all that he had spoken. They were to be essentially priests of him throughout all of creation, reflecting his rule and expanding his mercy and his grace, expanding this new community that is the church that is supposed to be a haven of peace and grace and mercy and truth, expanding it from that localized area until it would engulf all of the earth. And we see at the end this promise that just like Adam and Eve when they were given their commission, it was supposed to be as God walked in their midst and Jesus says to them, this new commission I give you. Remember that though you go and do it, I will be with you always. That as we walk and live out what we are created and designated to be and do, we do so walking in the presence of our God. So real quick, just reflecting on these two commissions, this creation and recreation, this forming of life and out of the dirt and the mud and this forming of life out of the rubble that we have created of ourselves and this commissioning to be image bearers of God or, in, or, or bearers of the gospel and being sent that we would expand what was given here and started by God and with it, working alongside of it to see it expand to the ends of the earth. I just want to just give a couple of thoughts for us as a church plan and reflecting on commission and mission. And first and foremost, mission is not something we do to pay back God for what he has done. I've heard too many try to motivate people to mission by saying, look what Jesus did for you. Can't you at least do that? No. There is no paying him back. It's not trying to make up for that guilt complex of like, look at everything Jesus did. I guess I should at least do that. That's not what mission is. And it's not a work that is up to us. It's something that is done in participation. But it's actually the mission that is given to the church and each and every one of us as part of the church is actually part of our redemption. It's being restored to our true nature and in purpose. See, mission is not an obligation, but it's an invitation that is ours by grace through the gospel to become fully human again. To receive back the commission that was to be done in expanding what God had initiated, walking alongside of God in the garden that was lost in the fall is now ours again. We can just be fully man and woman again be restored to our initial place as image bearers, but now also gospel bearers. That we might take this new creation, 
that started in the seedling of the resurrection of Christ that Scripture says is to be the first fruits of all creation. That all creation groans and awaits the revealing and the resurrection of the sons of God. That we begin living out what God had initiated and done so that it would spread to the expanse of the earth as we ourselves await the finalization and completion of God's renewal of creation. Where that tov that God spoke over creation finds its trajectory to where it was heading. And just one last note that's important for us to remember is just like the image of God was not given because you carry these certain attributes that make you kind of like God, and so that makes you the image of God, but it's bestowed to all. Because it's an outside thing given to us. Um, same with the new image-bearing or gospel-bearing call that is given to the church is not based upon certain intrinsic attributes. That this is given to those who are super intelligent, super confident, annoyingly outgoing, those who have the great piety, Because we see that it also wasn't given to those who had strong faith and certitude. Do you notice in verse 17? It says, when, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. It didn't say, and then Jesus chastised those ones and kicked them out. He said, you off the team. Now I got something to say to the rest of them. No. He said, and some doubted, and then he turned around and immediately said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, both to those who were strong of faith, worshiping, and those who were still scared and doubting. It didn't matter. It was something that was proclaimed over each and every one. And so on this Trinity Sunny Sunday, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created everything and created humanity for special communion with a God that existed for eternity in communion with himself. And then commissioned humanity to participate with God as representatives of his glory, his dominion, and his grace throughout creation. So within that, as, our, as God's redeemed, we are restored to our beautiful created intended purpose to be people who are, li- who are loved and in communion with God and given a wonderful work to do to bring his glory, his majesty, his presence throughout the ends of the earth. We are a people who are created for communion and people created with a commission. And both need to be tied together. 
because our commission is actually all about our communion with him because it is simply an invitation to participate in what he's already doing. That we might walk with him and be with him. So by grace, through faith, and the work that God had done to redeem us, he is calling us to be fully human again. Knowing that as we be the church, we do so with Christ intimately with us through the power of the Holy Spirit that was sent to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue.